0: The old world is ending, and we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the structural problems in our world and the real solutions that we have today to transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse into a collaborative and sustainable futuristic society that serves all life. You may think it's an impossible dream, but the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Zachary Marlowe, Matt Holton, and Amanda Smith, and together when we can move past this economic absurdity to come together and actualize our collective potential to create something completely new. We are Moneyless Society.
1: Here on the Moneyless Society podcast, we like to talk about all the ins and outs of a world without money and how it would operate and whatnot, Uh, but a lot of the time when I'm talking with people outside of the show here, something interesting happens when I bring up the subject of a moneyless society, and that's the fact that more often than not, whoever I'm speaking with automatically assumes that we'd be going back to a barter or trading type of system and that we'd still continue a lot of our current activities like working nine to five jobs, uh, but money would simply be eliminated somehow. In reality, when we talk about a moneyless society, we're talking necessarily and inadvertently about lots of other systems and structures that act in accord with and alongside the monetary system. And one of those things is trade. Now, is trade an inherently bad thing? Of course not. Uh, No more than a knife or a shovel or whatever other kind of tool we may have at our disposal. Uh, But even a simple act like trade itself can have downsides. What happens when society is based on trade? Uh, What are the effects when you extrapolate trade on a massive scale a thousand years into the future with resource depletion, a hyper-financialized socio-economic system based on competition? and a whole host of other factors. Uh, A lot of the systems and structures that we talk about on this show would actually make formal business trade and governmental trade unnecessary and even obsolete in the long run. And that's for a reason. Uh, Here to talk about trade, among other things today, including his free online network he has built for sharing goods and services, is Colin Turner. Colin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome.
2: We are synced, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Matt, uh, Amanda, and Marlowe, how are you doing, guys? I'm really happy for you to have me on. Thanks a million, I really appreciate it. Right, so yeah, uh, about 11 years ago, I wrote this thing called the Free World Charter, and um, that was like really popular, it was, Something that was uh, inspired in part by the Venus Project and the Zeitgeist Movement, which were like going crazy at that time. You know, this this stuff was in like 2010, 2011, 2012, all this stuff was going really, really uh, mental. And of course, social media was going crazy as well at that time. So um, on the back of all that, yeah, so this uh, thing, this Free World Charter thing became very popular. And what that is, is... Um, like 10 basically founding principles for what I would consider to be, you know, um, defining guidelines for a a moneyless society, essentially. And um, really things have kind of snowballed from there. Um, I've been at at this like, like say, 10 years or, or more and uh, written a couple of books on the subject and given quite a few talks about it and interviews and such like. Yeah, I suppose really where it came from was um, I was introduced to the Venus Project through a competition, believe it or not, that was on the Irish media here. Uh, <laughs> the Irish um, the Irish economy was in bits, basically, around 2008, 2009. And the the president of the country basically put out a public competition, more or less to say... Any ideas, guys? <laughs> this kind of thing, you know, what are we going to do to to save the country from the abyss? And uh, some bright spark—I don't know who it was—in uh, the states. Basically, it was a it was an international contest. Somebody put up something—a link to the Venus Project and uh, resort based economy, blah blah. And I was actually—I had entered that competition as well. I had a few entries in there, and I was my entries were actually doing quite well. Um, it was like a public voting system. You know, you could vote ideas up and down and uh, i had a couple of ideas and they were doing quite well but also doing quite well at the time was this thing called the venus project and the resource-based economy which i had no idea what that was so of course i looked into it and um yeah i was really really smitten with the idea straight away um i had never imagined ever that there would be a society without money that was just absolutely crazy as far as I was concerned. I just came out of selling a business. I had a success, successful business for years and uh, came out of that. And um, then sort of read, reading this thing about having no money was just ridiculous. So, But I looked into it and uh, it wasn't long before I was actually smitten with the idea. I said, yeah, this, this is really makes sense this is the way it should go this is where we sh- we should be going and uh, of course it could, it's very easy to explain the way we're we're not we shouldn't be going and what we are doing and um so yeah things kind of sprang from there when i uh, when i spoke to about the venus project with various friends of mine at the time who i thought would be like really gung ho for they, they they were actually completely against it and they were they thought it was like ridiculously um, star trekky you know very science fiction blah blah that sort of stuff. And I, I kind of had to agree they had a point. And that sort of got me to thinking well, look, maybe these guys are onto something, the Venus Project, they're onto something, but they're kind of framing it in a way which is kind of like maybe a little bit unpalatable to a lot of people. And um, so I came up with this idea, well, look, what are they guy what are they really talking about here? I mean what what sort of value system are they talking about? And that's where the the charter came from. I said, okay, well, let's try and distill the values of that kind of system that you're trying to describe and put it into some simple terms, kind of like Ten Commandments as such. and uh, to say like what what sort of basic things do we need to believe and understand? before that kind of society can be possible. And yeah, so the, the will Charter came out of that and that was uh, really successful. We had great uh, help from uh, Peter Joseph and the Zeitgeist Movement. He helped us promote it as well. And we got a, a lot of people interested there. So that was nice. So that's really the, that's where I'm from, really. I mean, I'm originally, I'm, I'm a musician, I suppose. And one of the things uh, that's quite common with musicians is that it's bloody difficult to make a career out of music. And I think that's kind of, That sort of prepares musicians a little bit more than others to kind of think about something like a moneyless society because a lot of musicians basically do work for free. They do lots of shit for free and uh, they record their music and they spend months doing it and no one wants to give them any money for it. So they end up giving their CDs away to their friends. This is uh, like every musician knows this. You know, every musician has a box of CDs under their bed. And uh, this is... It's a reality for musicians and it's eventually will be the reality for everybody, you know, that eventually the the technology will just overwhelm uh, the marketplace. I think everyone, everyone knows that. It's just a matter of what, when. And uh, so, yeah, that best prepares me anyway. And a lot of other musicians, actually people like Peter Joseph, who's also a musician and uh, Matt, I see you nodding. So I'm guessing you're kind of musician as well. They've got with a very fancy uh, ribbon mic there too. And also, um, Michael Tellinger from Move On To is also another musician and uh, Sasha Stone from New York Nation. So there is a little bit of a, there's a connection between music and this kind of way of thinking, I believe, you know. That was, so uh, so that's really where I came from in a nutshell. I was going to say, I, I was
0: listening to your TED Talk uh, the other day and I was just thinking about that. Like, I mean, I'm kind of a hippie. <laughs> I'm an artist. The prospect of a world without money just inherently makes sense to me because I've seen it. I've seen people... Sharing. I've seen people living without money, and the the music thing is is a great is a great uh, example because it's like everybody needs music. It's something we need. You know, it's like a really weird, rare thing for somebody to not like music, to not feel like they need it. And then another aspect of that is that uh, the radio is a is a free service. It's a publicly, it's a public good. It's a public service. It's something that you know it's infrastructure at that point. We need this stuff to live. We need so many of the things in our world that. Uh, do not make money or are not done for money or that, that they're done just for the joy of doing it. I mean, you, you look at a, a I, I saw some incredible jazz last night on the street. I just, I heard it and I drifted towards it. And just the the ecstasy of these musicians playing and, you know, maybe they, they had a tip jar and it had like a few crumpled up bills in it and, and there were, they, were, they were just in ecstasy and joy, pure joy of expressing himself, of doing what they're doing. Of making their art, of of uh, helping people, of escaping the drudgery of the world, I mean you can't put a price on that and I think the prospect of putting a price on something like that is fucking absurd. How could you put a price on a song that somebody wrote about their dead mother or the love of their life or that mo- of love, of love itself, of of that experience of love that we need music to navigate mm-hmm. our world, you know. When we fall mm-hmm. in love we hear music, we hear songs, you know, we hear strings. And and it's yeah. like, we need this, we need art to navigate through life. And this system fundamentally does not value it in this contradictory yep. way where it totally needs it. It needs mm-hmm. it to survive. People need music to get them through the day, but it's an incongruous yep. and illogical system. So...
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I completely agree, of course. And uh, it's not, of course, it's not just, it's not just related to music, because, um, I mean, basically, the commodification of everything is pretty much a cause of the problem, a lot of the problems that we see. But of course, some things are more hidden than others, because obviously, food is hugely necessary. And the, you know, uh, I don't know, transport are, are things that are really necessary. So people, they're kind of people don't mind paying for those things, but music is still kind of seen largely as a luxury to most people. I mean, think about the, the Beatles or Led Zeppelin, or the, these guys who all everyone thinks are like incredible artists. I mean, they they also owe a hell of a lot of their success to the fact that they were riding on the back of this massive fucking machine, which was basically printing millions and billions of dollars, you know, every year. The musical means
0: of production. And, and not to mention that they were also a lot of their music was heavily inspired or you could even say stolen. I mean, how many lawsuits did Led Zeppelin lose for taking songs from black musicians? From people who never made a cent off those songs.
2: Yeah. Have you seen have you seen um there's loads of videos about Jimmy Page ripping all songs? There's something just amazing. Like it's like Whole Lot of Love and Share Way to Heaven. I mean, there's just there's all like they're fucking carbon copies of songs that came out some years before, you know? It's really it's amazing. But uh a fair play to him if you got away with it, I suppose.
0: The the whole magic of rock and roll and the blues and soul and jazz and all these forms of music that came from black people and black culture that that emerged from like the conditions of the utmost scarcity, the utmost exploitation and deprivation that they were not making money for doing what they're doing. And a lot of those early blues records, like those people would go into the recording studio and put their music out and, the recording companies would make money, and they would never.
2: Elvis is a is a classic example. You know, he basically stole black people's music. He sang black people's music as a white guy, and he became like a kind of overnight success. You know, but he basically owes everything to all the the black guys who went before him. You know, but of course, just because he's white, you know, he's automatically gets a golden ticket. You know, it's it's fucking ridiculous. So, Colin, uh, I kind of
0: want to play the uh, the devil's advocate here um, because I think a lot of people intuitively understand the kind of things that you're talking about I think I think it's almost a cliche to say like money's not real oh we could live without money you know but it I think when you really break things down boiling it all down to trade that's I think is the most radical thing that I've heard you say and it's it's the most radically sensible thing that I've heard in a long time that it's you know so many people are, are, are willing to say oh it's it's not capitalism it's crony capitalism or oh it's just capitalism or you know it's the way that money's being used or it's it's uh, it's the, that the wrong people have the money or it's that you know it's 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 all about splitting hairs of get, not getting to the real point not really really getting to the bones of what drives this system and it's you know money itself is just a measure of trade and when i really think about it, it you know even even somebody who's from my perspective who i would consider you know, pretty, pretty radically open-minded, you know, thinking about that, like trade, like trade is bad, like exchange. But if you really think about it though, it's not just exchange, it's a, uh, it's exchange where one person profits, it's exchange that optimizes self-interest. So I, w- I kind of want to ask you, I, w- I want to kind of pick your brain more about this. Uh, c- can you kind of explain how it, all of this boils down to trade and how trade itself is kind of the root cause of our societal dysfunction?
2: Great question, yeah, and uh, it is a very controversial one, and uh, something that uh, I suppose I, I would occupy a minority of a minority on this kind of point of view, but uh, I think it's a really strong one. I I've had some really good conversations with people who are like mathematicians who are working with this, working on this area, and there's there's quite a lot of studies out there, and I actually believe. I said this to one guy, and I think it's quite an interesting statement. I, I believe that we're almost at the kind of a, an E equals MC squared moment here in terms of realization of what the economy is, how it works, why it functions that way. Um, like, obviously, Einstein, when he came with his the, general theory theory of relativity, was basically changed our perception of the universe. And I believe that... We're, all, we're on the cusp of a kind of a, like a mathematical proof of saying that actually the economy is also not what we think it is, the way we perceive it is actually wrong, and that that inequality basically is built right into that basic way we operate. The most simple way to to describe it is um, a guy called um, Professor Eric Schechter, who I was talking to, I did a video with him. And he did a a really, really simple video um, explanation of it and an essay. And he basically just, he he defines it like this, that when you trade with something, you trade with somebody, sorry, for any object or for any, in any medium, whether you're exchanging money or you're exchanging goat for a lamb or whatever, there's an upper ceiling and there's a lower floor. And the upper ceiling is the maximum amount of money that that person will pay for that item, right? And the lower floor is the minimum amount of money that person will accept the other person will accept for that item okay so what you have is you have this upper and lower region right where one person is won't pay, won't pay any more than this maximum and another person won't sell for less than this minimum and what happens is then you have this like variance of the sort of the price for that thing whatever it is being sell is somewhere in between this upper region and this lower region and Obviously, normally you would expect that the trade will happen in the, the the exact median area, where basically it's right in the middle between the the upper level and the lower level. And you would expect that to happen, but of course, when you think about it, that that rarely happens. You know, because obviously, some people might be in a more advantageous position to trade, or might be a more advantageous position to sell, so they can they can shift their parameter accordingly. So. The point is that as long as the actual trade takes place in the exact median area, then there's no problem with that. But that very rarely happens. Often it's too low and the person who is uh, basically, the person who is selling is not getting enough money to know for what they're selling, or often it's too high and the person is paying too much. So for example, if you're selling me an apple, right and uh, maybe you want to charge me two dollars for an apple and i'm thinking well, that's very fucking expensive but maybe i'm in the middle of a fucking desert and i need an apple or whatever and i'll, I'll, I'll pay you or you know whatever for it so the point is that when there's when there's advantage to be taken or made by one or other parties of the transaction then that happens that does happen so basically if you can take advantage of in the situation you probably will if you imagine that Almost no one ever actually hits that median spot. It's always either higher or lower. Now imagine that happening over and over and over and over again with like millions and billions and quadrillions of trades happening. Then you're going to have this. You're going to see a big effect of this um, variance between what's a good trade and what's a and what's a bad trade. And the, and also you have to remember then that's not even including. The fact that when you when you make more money, when you ha- when you take advantage of a trade, it also puts you into a more advantageous position for future trade. So for example, you you sell me the the Apple for five dollars, you made an extra fucking four dollars for nothing or whatever. And so now you can you're in an advantageous position for the next trade. So when you take this two those two things into consideration, the fact that trade is never really equal, it, it sometimes is, but by and large, but by statistically, it's never always even. And one person always makes more than the other in the terms of the profits of the transaction. And then add to the, that that anyone who profits more from that transaction is in a stronger position to profit more from the next transaction and the next transaction and the next transaction. And this is what... I mean, this is basically been mathematically proven by this guy called uh, Bruce Boghosian. Anyway, he's basically written a paper on this, and uh, he's um, he's done a TED talk, I believe, but it's actually not it's not released yet. And uh, he basically has he's written a mathematical proof saying that all trade, regardless of what it is and who it is, and even if everyone starts from a completely, excuse me, even even base, um, it creates inequality. That inequality must statistically happen from that wealth will go to the wealthy and the poor will get more poor and that's just it's mathematically it's mathematically proven and when people talk about you know capitalism is the problem you know these fuckers took the land these fuckers are are st- seizing stealing the means of production or they're overcharging or these are just greedy bastards basically you know when people talk about that That's not the full picture, even though that's 100% true. Even though that's absolutely 100% true, that these people are behaving that way.
0: Well, the system system incentivized them to be greedy, you know? And and if they're not greedy, they're not going to win. And it's a zero-sum game. So what do you think is going to happen?
2: Yeah, well, what you're talking about is rather than saying that these are just bad people who are doing bad things, you have to say that this is late-stage trade. This is a trade over so many millennia has basically brought us to this point where some people have so much wealth that they can really exploit that more and more to their advantage. And, um, that's, that's where we're at. So it's not, it's like, it's not like capitalism just fucking dropped on us out of nowhere. You know, it's like suddenly we're, we're put in this horrible system and we don't know how to escape, but it. it's more that this thing has crept and crept and crept over millennia and basically put us into this ridiculous situation now. And it's not that it's not even that's to say that trade is is evil because, of course, trade has done a lot of good things either. It's just to say that it's an inevitable byproduct of that process of that way of operating. That if you trade in society, then that will happen, and there's no way to avoid that. And well, like I say, with this, this guy, Bruce and definitely check him out. He more or less has even written a formula for this, and like I said, we're nearly at this. EMC squared moment to say, well, look, we know for, for a fact now that this way of operating creates this result. And that's where we're at, you know.
1: I have something that I'd kind of like to add on to that and also kind of, sure. I guess, maybe a question at the same time. You actually really are kind of onto something there when you when you say trade, you know, being a, a, a root problem. And And I use the phrase a root problem because I think you could almost say it's it's coupled with a couple other things that um, have have happened throughout history, just that have basically um, become modern practices now. Um, And another root problem that I see a lot of people talking about that is not money itself is the system of private property. right? and and i think that is kind of something that has evolved alongside of trade uh as well as just kind of a ruling class that's been able to take control of property and dominate it uh you know and really control the means of production you know machines and factories and whatnot through through various means throughout history i mean the private property is nothing new and the concept of it you know uh it goes thousands of years back um you know but essentially you know, know rulers the ruling class were able to take control of you know property and things like that there through through either armies or you know various like religious mechanisms and uh you know, other yeah, other absolutely. things like that and and so they take control of that and then the trade kind of works in conjunction with that to create massive inequality where now you have a ruling class that owns physically owns things that already put them way ahead right and then the trade kind of exacerbates the problem at the same time, it's almost kind of like which came first, too, like the chicken or the egg. I, I was, I was wondering if you, if you've heard much about the private property, you know, being the root cause as well, and and how, what, what you feel about that kind of interrelating with the whole trade thing, because that's kind of more or less one of the things that I've heard touched on a lot, you know.
2: Also, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, but you have to remember, I mean, what is private property, and why, or why private property? I mean, why would you have, like, you know. 100 acres of land why, why why would you fence off 100 acres of land for yourself for what because you know, it's what, mine what are you what are you <laughs> going to do with that that land yourself you know i mean it's 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 work it's it's extra you know it's extra labor for yourself and it's just too much stuff do you need it so the only reason anyone would do that would be to create it would be to um to gain some kind of competitive or trading advantage so again i would say the the ring fencing of private property and the the land grabbing and all that sort of stuff is all still it's just another dot in this timeline of 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 the trading process you know we that we start with we start with trading and it's it's not to say again i'm not saying the trade is bad i'm saying that that trade has been fucking great it's really it's really been good for humanity in a in 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 loads of ways you know and i don't think we could have done it any differently i don't think that we could have got this far Um, without us you know I think we had to do it because it was just it's just too impractical to you know to cater for your every need yourself you know without relying on other people and of course the best way to rely on other people is to trade with them and uh, but I would say that of course trade came first absolutely before uh, this private property came along or private property came very very soon after as soon as people realized well you know, if I if I I need to find some way to get us some kind of a competitive advantage here. So well, hang on, I'm gonna fucking take I'm gonna claim this mountain over here and uh, keep this for myself or whatever. And so you, you understand that gives it there's an incentive there to have private property because again, why would you have more private property than you can possibly use yourself? Because it's just extra work and it's extra, you know, responsibility, a headache for nothing, you know. The only way you could you would need something extra is to uh is to trade with us and the same reason why is why would somebody own 10 houses now you know you can't fucking live in 10 houses but maybe i'll live in one and i'll rent out nine you know and make uh, money from that go ahead paul
0: mccartney owns like 600 houses or something in england who (laughs) Paul McCartney, he owns like 600 houses. <laughs> how, the, how the hell? You're you're already a Beatle, already, you've already made the more money than anyone can even imagine over a lifetime of merchandising and putting your face on everything imaginable, on top of all the music and the touring and the songs. You own 600 houses, I mean it's just like, if you have a certain amount of money, that money is, it becomes like this tide, this cascade that sweeps you along in it. Uh, I, I actually wanna bring, uh, to shift back to, uh, Amanda had a point. Um, sure. I'd like to bring her back in there before I go off on another another tangent about being a warlord and wanting to to accumulate all things. I'm going to take it. I'm going to have it all just so I can have it, so I can possess it, so it's mine. That's why I have it, because it's mine. <laughs>
3: and on that note, I'll uh, piggyback on what you were just saying about Paul McCartney's um a ridiculous, ridiculous amount of wealth. And I just learned today that apparently Paris Hilton has a miniature version of her mansion that cost around $327,000 in her backyard for her 15 dogs. That is poolside with a gate, heated and AC <laughs> and everything. No lie. What kind of world do we live in?
0: Paris's dogs live better than most people in this world. Mo- than she- her parent dogs live better than the richest people in most countries. Wow.
3: I mean that that really puts things into perspective, doesn't it? I do have a point, but I'm not sure that uh, maybe I misconstrued your aim here. But I was under the impression that sharing is the premise of your your movement, for lack of a better term. Like you, am I am I correct? Sharing is basically a, a cornerstone of what you think will carry society from where we are.
2: Sure. Yeah. We, we can talk about that more later. But yes. Yeah. Go ahead.
3: Okay. Well, well my well my inquiry is is really a double one. It's, it's a concern/question. Um when I when I hear the word sharing, I realize that most people equate it to uh something synonymous with like a moral compass. Basically the concept of sharing uh it's a buzzword and and and, and it's rooted in foundations that are uh, basically attached to religion, like sharing and morality very much the same thing so it produces two issues for me in my mind and so I wonder if that's the same for most people if society uh, continues to invest efforts into holding theirself arbitrarily accountable to some to some type of like Ten Commandments like you were saying earlier. Um, rather than seeking uh, rational rationality when it comes to to making decisions in the way of sustainability. Uh, is that, isn't that that kind of backtracking? Isn't that kind of spinning our wheels? And then the other thing is, um, doesn't the concept of sharing automatically cancel out the argument for an abundant society where equality is the goalpost and and absolutely feasible because there's enough to go around and sharing is absolutely necessary
2: sharing and morality yeah i mean of course he has loads of stuff i mean all the major religions basically espouse um, sharing and uh, you know common ownership Um obviously the one i know most about is christianity and um, yeah i mean that's jesus christ was full of that stuff and that, uh, absolutely that's it makes sense you know i think um, it's obviously a good way to behave, you know, to to try and uh, to help your fellow man or a woman or whatever. I mean, it's absolutely fair enough to that. Well, let's talk about morality. Actually, morality obviously is something that we have a, a problem with, obviously in society, and uh, you can argue what, for many reasons why where a lot of people behave in an immoral or immoral fashion. And um, I believe that. Um, A lot of it probably is to do down with with our trading and our competitive system that's what basically uh basically um unhinges us from our normal moral compass that basically causes us to do things that that maybe are not as good as we would do otherwise and so um if if we're sharing then obviously the the morality because the sharing is obviously a better thing to do obviously but that creates a sort of a it enhances our, our own innate moral compass to basically to help society and to, to, um, to be a part of society, to participate in society. The thing, though, is that, and I, I look at it this way, is that everyone talks about um, society as based on whatever, based on religion or based on um, the na- nation, whatever country we live in or whatever, um, whatever unites us, whatever society is based first and foremost by a long margin on economy that people come together for economic reasons first and foremost i mean they come together for other reasons but like by a long margin they come together for economic reasons because it's obviously advantageous to um to work together as a community or as a team to actually get help get the things that we all need and the things that we all want so, I mean, an obvious example would be like, imagine you're, you know, you know, you have a, this empty country with nobody living on it and everyone's just wandering around the country. Eventually, people will zero in on places which are resource rich, like, for example, a, fre- a nice freshwater stream or a place which has uh, lots of abundance of food growing or something like that. People will congregate in those areas where there is a material and uh, economic advantage in doing so. And that for me, means that all society, all congregations of people, really are are rooted in uh, the economic reasons for being there. And that's so that's why we congregate together first is because there's an economic or material advantage in doing in doing that.
0: I'm not sure if it's a disagreement or if it's just a a not totally formed uh, sense of alignment, but I think we congregate because it's our essential nature we evolved in a social form it's our primary adaptation not just technology you know not these abstractions of economy of of abstract meaning that we place on things in like the metaphysical value you know like like private property is a metaphysical concept it's you know you can't really own an apple i mean you can't really own a piece of land that will exist long after you pass you know out of your body but you know, to to sort of cycle back to my point, I think that we congregate, we come together because it's, it's inherent. We, we always do it. We literally go insane if we don't. I mean, people who living in isolation, I think is one of the worst, one of the worst consequences of this system, you know, alienation and atomization of people into beyond individuals, they become zeros, they become totally isolated in themselves. And there, there's just a plethora of of mental health issues and disintegrations of the self that, that happen when we are separated from people. Because we we are people. We are not just ourselves in an individual capacity because one person can't reproduce. We're not eukaryotes or or whatever the term is for uh, an organism that can you know reproduce asexually, that can just bud off a piece of itself and create. We can't do that. We need one other person at least to come together and form. And we need more people than that because look at us, we're a pre- pretty preposterous organism to exist all over this earth, we are spongy and soft, and we got no horns, none at all. We got we got these flat teeth. We can't even tear things apart with our teeth. We're pretty preposterously adapted to this environment, unless we come together and work together and think together. I think all, yeah, yeah, all economics do. is is a rationalization of the the arbitrary constructs that we have sort of uh, been pushed into today. I don't think it's intuitive at all.
1: Yeah, no, I just kind of wanted to make a little distinction there too, I think, because I think we kind of need to make a little bit of a distinction between the economy, especially like household economy and and an economy, say like within a community. Um, you know, it's something that it does essentially to keep itself going. You know, because I mean, sure you have the macro economy that we look at, you know, the entire world and whatnot, but you also have you know your little micro economy, which is your household or your community and things like that. You know, and and essentially what's required of that economy is whatever it takes, uh, you know, to keep your household or your community functioning, essentially, right? And, and to me, that's also an economy. I think Giannis Varoufakis, uh, I, I can never pronounce his last name. I, Giannis Varoufakis. Varoufakis, that's it. I, I think he, I, it was kind of enlightening the way he used that term, too, um, in one of his books that I read. And, you know, he he, he kind of using the way like the old, uh, root of the term is, is how the household operates, you know, how the household functions, essentially the daily routines and tasks that have to take place within a household in order for it to function. Uh, you know, and, but it can also, I think, be something that's distinct from a social life too. Right. But but they overlap. There's a large degree of overlap there and they kind of function together, you know, because a lot of the time people are are very social with the people that they work with, right? And a lot of the time, the people you work with happens to also be your friends and your neighbors and your family and the people in your community, right? So the two overlap a lot. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons why the term a socioeconomic system kind of comes into play here, you know, because the two are essentially are are overlapping in a lot of ways and they work together. Um, And so there's kind of that distinction to be made, too. However, I think with our economy, you know, it's so so individualism is so highly overrated essentially and everybody kind of aspires to this thing this individualism and (laughs) and um you know essentially that uh, that i can take care of myself i'm an individual i'm independent no one else is like me you know and it's this kind of idea that's bouncing a lot of uh, around a lot of people's heads are like i don't need anyone i'm a survivor you know i'm i'm an individual this kind of just ignores the fact that we really do need each other in a sense that this economy this household economy this community economy they need other people to operate they need Uh, You know, reciprocity, whether that reciprocity be immediate through trade or systemic, you know, like more of like a a commune sort of thing or something like that. And that's kind of what I think... uh, how Colin and i and a lot of people in this you know whole community are on the same page you know we envision sharing essentially is kind of like the other side of the coin to systemic reciprocity right we can we can do things we can put our labor into the community into this socioeconomic system you know and not expect anything in return and but we can also share items as well right we all don't need our own jet ski in order to be able to go ride a jet ski on the weekends or something like that you know what i mean we we can share these things and we can put our own labor in And and we can have this sort of systemic community reciprocity, you know, a systemic reciprocity through our socioeconomic system, our own personal economy there, whether it be our household or community or city or neighborhood or whatever it is, you know, and just kind of acknowledging that, that we can operate differently within those systems. It doesn't have to be a trade based system like you're saying, you know, Colin, Uh, it can be a sharing based system along with this systemic, you know, kind of down the line reciprocity where everybody just pitches into what's needed needed and everybody makes sure that everybody gets everything that they need essentially
2: mm-hmm. i think that i'd just like to pick on what zachary said there about um the uh the reasons for people coming together and i, I think you're absolutely right yeah of course um procreation project progenation is obviously a part of that um but really i was talking originally is that not just individuals congregating but like um well like familial tribes i mean there's I think all the evidence more or less points to that um years ago we we sort of roamed in sort of familial tribes So just like you know a bunch of us kind of uh, related or half related or whatever and uh, but eventually these people of course the the agricultural um, revolution came in then and of course that sort of brought in the the whole notion or the whole potential of of more complex society where we basically were a little bit more organized and we don't we're not looking uh, worried about where the food is going to come from we're not we're not scared of the harvest or there's not going to be any berries on the trees or whatever that would listen let's get together and let's organize this thing a little bit better so I mean again it comes down to really what I'm what I would contend is like an economic advantage to actually to be together but yeah I totally accept that just i want to get back to if, if you don't mind I want to get back to Amanda's point actually because she asked me like a couple of questions I just wrote it down here and uh, what she was saying is that she're her reservation about the idea of sharing is that it kind of it goes counter to the idea of creating abundance, and uh, of course it's it's an obvious question. And uh, funnily enough, I actually I was talking to Roxanne Meadows about this um, ages ago, and uh, I kind of I said to her when I was thinking of setting up ShareBay, I said, "Well, look, we're doing we're setting up this thing where everyone shares goods and services and all this sort of stuff," and uh, she said to me. At that point, but that uh, well, she didn't think that sharing was relevant at all, you know. And I have to say, my my fucking jaw hit the floor when I heard that. Here's a like a a group advocating like a post-trade society, and they're also saying that sharing is basically irrelevant. So I thought that was just astoundingly short-sighted. But I want to. I just want to explain a little bit about my idea, my vision of sharing, or whatever the theory of sharing as I see it. And um, I I I understand Amanda saying that of course yeah like it's just we have to go back to this much more humble lifestyle where we're just kind of helping each other out and of course that's we're not we're not going to do that we're not go, we're not going back to a more primitive lifestyle even if we wanted to that's not going to happen you know like as, as uh, Daniel Schnachtenberg often says the technology is not going back in the box and he's absolutely right about that so um, the technology is always going to be there it's always going to be a great tool for us to help and do the things that that we want to do. But fundamental to the, the ideas that all of us basically here, and maybe even watching, are agreeing to is this idea of a moneyless society. This is what we want to promote, a moneyless society, or free world charter, or open access economy, or whatever you ca- we want to call it. We have to accept the fact that a moneyless society is a society that's moved beyond trade. We have to say that that is moved beyond trade, because if we haven't moved beyond trade, we're just going to go back to money, you know? So, so whether you do that through like creating these mad fucking machines that just spew abundance everywhere and build these great cities, or whether we kind of do that through promoting a different type of value system, I think that doing that by through promoting a different type of value system is the only viable way to do it rather than just waiting for the... Technology to just completely overwhelm the market, which is something that I said earlier, which I believe is inevitable. It will happen that eventually jobs and everything will just be pointless. Yeah, of course that will happen, but we're not anywhere near that moment than we were, like maybe a hundred years ago when the Luddites were around. These basically guys were s- smashing fucking machines in the early twentieth century, saying, "Look, there's a guy that's going to take the jobs." But all this technological unemployment that everyone talks about has never happened and it still it doesn't look like it's ever going to happen even in the foreseeable future and why is that? Because we keep creating ever more inventive ways to perpetuate the market whether it's we're, we're selling fucking uh, cars or we're selling sex dolls or fucking uh, no, uh, space hotels there's always going to be something to sell, a product to sell as long as our mindset is, we've got to fucking sell something, you know, as long as we believe that life is about selling something and trading, then we're always going to find ways to do it.
0: It's, it's it's the hustle at the at the core of our of our worldview of our existence that you you need to turn a buck that you need to squeeze a profit out of something and I think it it cycles back again to the the notion of property of ownership of you know why would you own something if you if you if you weren't trying to extract some sort of extraneous value to it and you know it's like the the num the, the ways that we are going out of our way to create these excuses for trade and for extracting a profit are are truly getting absurd i mean nfts non-fungible tokens you know in the art world it's just like it's a jpeg that somebody will pay thousands of uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to have when it's completely arbitrarily scarce
3: that's when i knew humanity is doomed the day that that came out i thought (laughs) what this i anybody can screenshot that what makes it so special i mean it's just another another form of fiat in, in some
2: respects but that's absolutely nailed it though Zach. that's that's what i'm talking about that as long as there is as long as we have it in our minds that we got to fucking sell something to keep this thing going then of course you're going to have nfts and we probably ha- can't even imagine the bullshit that's going to come out in future years you know and this yeah i mean s- selling selling you know digital
0: genitalia for people in the virtual world and things like that but i think i want to i want to go back to a point you were making a minute ago about technology and i think you really said it very simply Technology can do whatever we want it to do. And right now, what we want it to do is to perpetuate the market system, is to generate incredible abundances of nonsense, of garbage, of things that are meant to be used once, I always think about like the most useless things, or like those little little kids' toys you see at like vending machines at restaurants. Just things nobody asks for, nobody. There's no tangible need for it. It was made just for an excuse to have something to sell. And it's like we have had the technology since probably the 1950s to create massive abundance. To have, to create into the abundance. You you said this in your TED talk that was really simple. You said basically we have robots on other planets, but we can't feed people, we can't like meet the basic needs of society because our our whole society is based in this kind of neoliberal, you have to earn your right to live and exist in this world so that you can contribute not to society, not to a value system that is real, not to your neighbors, not to your family, not to creating something, growing something, building something, creating a new idea, but to this totally arbitrary market system that we place all value and importance in. So we have the technology to create abundance today. We don't need to wait on any technology. We don't need any more advancement. We need advancement in our social consciousness. We need advancement in our understanding of what is valuable, of what is real and sustainable and important.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree with everything you said there. Hundred percent, great. I'd like to add
1: something to that. I mean, because I, I think you're right. We have had the technology to create abundance for a long time. Um, the thing, the thing that we are, are are really kind of lacking is the purpose and the, the really the social organization. I think of the technology. You know, the, people coming together, having a common purpose behind it. Enough of enough people. You know, congregating essentially in one place, coming together, utilizing that technology to create an abundance and I think we're closer to that now than we have been in a very very long time um, because of numerous reasons essentially because of the you know uh, dilemma that we have with climate change we got to stop you know spewing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere as fast as possible Um, also with the the inequality that we're experiencing in the world just nosebleed levels of inequality where you know eight people now own half the wealth in, in the world essentially and they're There's, you know, millions of people still starving and it's just intolerable to a lot of people. But we also have more technology now as far as communicating that feedback to people out there and to get people to understand uh, that what is actually happening. Essentially, I I think that's one thing that technology has changed drastically recently is. Alternative media, the fact that the, that the average person can now get on the internet and broadcast their thoughts, their feelings, anything that's happening right there to anyone else in the world is one of the major turning points essentially now because we have that feedback from what is happening. We have those information sources coming in now from all over the world through this thing called the internet and social media and facebook and instagram and twitter and all these other things now we can see anybody's and everybody's thought forms and we have the ability to organize much more efficiently much quicker than we have ever before in the history of mankind the 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 mass uh, potential for people to come together and to organize now quickly uh, is is just way beyond anything we've had in the past. And I think that is the main difference that we are experiencing now with the technology, with these groups of people that are coming together. It's happening now more digitally on online than it is, but it's only a matter of time, I think, until it starts happening physically as well, until people actually start coming together and building communities and start implementing more of these values within their own lives, uh, you know, and, and really live by the principles that you're talking about in you know your free world charter and things like that i think you know it it not only applies to you know the online space it applies to the physical world and and we will get to the point where we start applying those principles to the physical world i think in the in the near future simply because of the two reasons why i was talking about climate change and inequality you know through this mechanism of the internet and technology
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, of course, yeah, the, the internet has been a real game changer, 100% game changer for humanity. Yeah, I think it obviously has a an unfortunate byproduct of this thing about like this phenomena of um, fake news and false information. And that also is something that I think is really quite dangerous. Um, not just for uh, normal people who are spreading disinformation, but for maybe um, like larger organizations like governments or, co- or corporations that are, are spreading disinformation or are um, disseminating sort of uh, particular viewpoints, promoting certain viewpoints. And uh, there's, there's a lot to be said about that. And it's a kind of a murky world. I, I don't really delve into much, but I mean, this whole area of, like Hollywood and uh, the sort of the underlying messages that get pushed out there all the time, it, it's difficult to imagine that there isn't some agenda behind that, you know. Because um, a simple case in point is like the, the way like people things like the FBI are really glorified as, as fucking superheroes, omnipotent superheroes. These guys who fly around in a jet and they fucking they can solve all the problems and uh, they can kiss their grandmother good night and all this sudden they're they're fucking heroes. And I think that there is there's definitely an agenda, there's an incentive behind that. that And that's, well, that's obviously, that's not really related to the internet, but it's kind of, it's a similar point in that um, because now communication is so much more widespread. I think that, you, I think I, I agree with you that it, in general, it's it's obviously much more democratic than it was before. It's a hell of a lot more democratic, but there is a, um, there is a little kind of a payback for that. that. There's a lot of stuff going out there that's kind of harder to believe or harder to reckon. I have to say, I like the Flat Earth Society guys. I love these guys because they're so fucking out there. And uh, I'm actually a member of one of the groups because I think, I mean, obviously, I don't think the world is flat, but I think that it's really, it's a really good like um, social experiment to see how these guys, how vehemently they stand by their claims and uh, they, they keep going with all that sort of stuff. And I think it's a bit of an eye opener for, for people like us. Wait, example, wait, hang on, know, hang on. You guys are... don't
0: believe the world is flat? What did a scientist tell you that? Really? A government scientist? Amazing. You'll believe, you people will believe anything.
3: A capitalist told me that it isn't flat. Because if it was, then capitalism would be exploiting it. The earth can't be flat, because if it was, capitalism would be exploiting the fact that it's flat. There'd be swings where people can swing off the edge of the earth and look into space and whatnot.
0: Or they'd be dumping trash off the end of it.
3: Yeah, yeah, we, that would just be the end of all our problems, just shove everything and everybody that we don't like off the
2: edge. There's another famous meme that says, uh, if it exists, then there must be porn of it. And I looked in a porn <laughs> site and I searched for ethical capitalism, but nothing came up.
3: <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, On the on the uh, issue of the internet being a tool for organization and revolution, and getting back to your concept of sharing, um, and I know you you must uh, it must be like a a band with a song that get that you get asked to play over and over, but. When it comes to share bay, what, what would you share with us about that? And um and, and am I right in assuming that basically um, your aims and proposals in regards to sharing is basically to help people in society uh, come back to the concept of social interaction and just getting along and, and realizing that there's options outside of you know individualism and and, uh, and and the capitalist model that we're forced to live under and be oppressed by.
2: Yeah. Well, I've right? see, see as I was saying earlier, I believe that um, the problems of society or the problems of the the capitalist system is not it's not a technological problem. It's a value system problem, and um, as Matt was uh, so eloquently saying there, that we all have this like inherently um, uh, individualist mindset that we're all atomized and we're all kind of basically you know like rats in a maze trying to fight for our own little corner. And that's, and that's a With mindset. With no cheese at the end. That's a mindset, yeah. That's a mindset which is basically obviously poisonous to society as a whole. I mean, as a whole. And that's like evident And of course, the way that, that the, the, the the climate is basically collapsing because of, of this very behavior. And um, I think that until we actually come to a, some kind of a value shift in the way we think about the world, the way we think about ourselves, the way we interact with other people, until that happens, nothing else is going to change. Technology is not going to change. Nothing else is going to improve in society until we actually start making that shift. Now, if you want to talk about like billionaires or people with who are a lot of um, a lot of capital or a lot of um, influence, that sort of stuff, I mean. You can just you can sit there and say, well, look, these guys just fucking own everything. They're bastards and whatever. And and, but that's not really going to change the situation. I mean, if you think about what is a billionaire and a billionaire is you can say on the one hand, he's a guy with a billion dollars. But he's also a guy who basically has something that everyone else believes has value. So if to to say that another way that basically his value and his assets only mean something because we say it does we say it does the, the ones of us who don't have the billion dollars we agree yeah this guy's got a billion dollars the bastard's got a billion dollars but it's because we're 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 subscribing to that common agreement is what's keeping him separated if we all said tomorrow in the whole country in the whole world we said okay dollars are basically gone they're zero don't exist anymore suddenly this guy with a billion dollars has nothing he doesn't have anything except maybe the car he has on that the house he's living in or whatever so basically the money system that token system only has value because we say it does and if we can change our value system to start to start valuing things differently to start valuing people and assets and resources and the 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 environment in a in a more coherent and more responsible way then we that changes the world in itself that changes the world and that changes how we would use technology that changes how we would approach um, society and interact with each other and ShareBay Bay is really trying to... <laughs> trying to kind of create the kind of training wheels, for want of a better word, for this kind of different type of attitude, this different type of uh, interacting with, with society. And of course, because society being the way it is now, so individualistic, I mean, Sherbet is like a fucking, is a microscopic of a microbe we have to start somewhere if we want to start changing this value system. I mean, I don't really see another way of doing it, you know, I mean, rather than basically just trying to promote this other alternative, different behaviors in small ways. And if we get, if we do enough of that, then suddenly we've created this, it's not share Bay, but it's more like an eBay of sharing things where you have like millions of users who are sharing things, um, with each other. And, uh, already you've you've created a different type of society, society by doing that because now you're you have more people and you're sharing things of higher value and you're doing that because there's more confidence in the system that i think is worth something because we got to fucking start somewhere you know and i don't i don't see any other shortcut way to do it because we still have the mindset i'm i'm meeting a girl on saturday who's going to give me some raspberry canes from her garden for free it's, it's, a, it's a fucking. It's great that she's doing that, but it's a fucking bullshit transaction on its own. It's not going to change the world. What if uh, if a billion of us did that with something of higher value? Now you've got something that's substantial change. And then with that mindset, bring in the technology, bring in the tools, and then you create that abundance with that because you've already got the mindset right in the right place. You know, for an organization like the Venus Project to completely disregard sharing as irrelevant was absolutely, a, a, you know, dro- a jaw-dropping moment of short-sightedness, I think, on their part. Because how can we possibly have a resource-based economy unless we are in the right sort of space where we're out for each other, you know? Because we're not out for each other now, really, you know? And so how can we do it otherwise? You know, you can't just, who the fuck is going to build your machines and your cities for free? It's not, it's not going to happen. It won't happen.
3: Thank you so much for taking the time to break that down. Excellent explanation and I completely follow you now and I hope that everyone else who had reservations and hesitations about it also uh, does. I I happen to uh, be or or tend to be the captain obvious of the group because I come from a region where um, people are still grasping at straws to wrap their head around concepts like this. And so I try to put my place and myself in their place so I understand better how to articulate these things on a level that it can be understood to the people in my immediate environment. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Uh, Just one other quick note, I think that, um, and and this is just just my personal hope and and takeaway from it, perhaps it's just that the logistics of sharing are irrelevant to the logistics of the, uh, you know, the abundant resources production and distribution um, aims and proposals. And that's all I could really say about that. I certainly am not Roxanne and cannot speak for her, but as, um, you know, as advocate for TVP and and a volunteer of the social media boards, we certainly don't discourage any efforts toward the main, you know, collective goal. But yes, we, we do tend to be rigid in how it is to be achieved.
0: I think uh what I what I see in Share Bay, the potential there is one, it's a it's a mutual aid network waiting to happen, you know, and and two, I th- I see it as a sort of prototype for a kind of true social media infrastructure like Facebook and social media, all social media platforms, something like Zoom, this is all infrastructure. It's digital infrastructure for a connected world. We need it. In this world today, you really can't do very much of anything without the internet. But I I see it as a model for future resource management. That's not so much based on like an algorithm that tells you what you need, but it's it's basically people if if there is if this is a implemented widely massively and there are millions or billions of people using a platform like this and it is in, integrated into the structure of society it is an infrastructure it is a kind of roadway that we use you know it's a grocery store it it's like people have needs you know that that are constantly varying we all have something we all have surplus that we don't need that 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 is is cluttering us up so it's like you know a, a a platform like this allows people to take what they don't need and get it to people who who do need something. So it's like we will always be exchanging things, I think. I mean, I do think actually we could get to the point where any place on the earth could basically generate avocados, you know, you can generate avocados in a wintry place, you know, with with new kinds of hydroponics and things like that. We could generate all kinds of different things in different regions. So I think for for I'm I'm also kind of trying to be, you know, uh, cadet obvious or something uh, <laughs> and think about this from the perspective of somebody who's like, y'all want to take away my private property, you want to take away my trade, my business, you want to take away everything I care about, you think the Beatles suck, I hate you, you know <laughs> but it's like more, more so from, from somebody with a logistical kind of global perspective, it's like nations trade, you know, like uh, I, I think one of the big reasons that uh, Cuba is pointed at, is lauded as a, a failure of socialism, is because it's an island nation and they there's a trade embargo on it they can't trade so they can't get the things that they need to live really so it's like if we are a global connected world we all have needs like how somebody has some uh raspberry canes or whatever you said to get rid of you are in uh, want of those things so you know it, it just fits together perfectly that you work together there so you know if, if we're in a global interconnected world and a certain region is lacking in a certain resource it only makes sense that if everyone in this network. This human network, this connected global network that isn't, you know, marred by these arbitrary borders, which really exist. I mean, it's it's interesting. We have like the whole open borders argument. It's like borders are totally pretty much open for merchants, for trade, for, you know, commerce. And they're closed for human beings just moving from place to place and, and trying to explore this world, which really is all of our home, you know, in, in a way. But good point. A globally interconnected network will always be exchanging things, but it's it's this form of trade where there is leveraged advantage, where you serve to gain through something instead of – you serve to gain as an individual instead of seeing this sort of mutually assured creation, this mutually beneficial relationships between all of us because – as we're experiencing with covid i mean it's a really interesting bellwether that that it's showing us that we are totally connected i mean and covid spread along trade routes that's what better example do you need to see that 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 our trade routes and and the ways that we are connected through trade more than anything else is destructive to us that this sickness which you know is a deadly sickness that has killed untold you know hundreds of thousands to even millions of people all over the world which could have been contained if it was a localized thing but we are so connected in this toxic trade environment we're we're totally connected we cannot argue that we live in a connected world we cannot bury our heads in the sand and say oh we're going to put america first or whatever it just it's just nonsense logic that anybody could be thinking that that anybody could be president saying that is just truly truly absurd
2: yeah I mean as, as to your first point on about sharebay being a kind of a network of resources but yeah that's that's the underlying idea of that that maybe someday it could be um like a, a way of um, finding resources and uh, help and stuff in your local community. Uh, something I wrote about in the, a book that I wrote. I wrote a novel called F-Day, which is about um, sort of the enactment of a kind of an open access economy, uh, sharing economy. And um, one of the features of that was obviously this realization that we need to have this kind of... Uh, this resource network, uh, resource and scale network. And uh, you can basically browse that network to find out what's what's available in your area and you post things because so that's where that you have that are access that you want to give to the, your neighborhood or to your local area. And that's definitely um, what I see that uh, the, the kind of future I can see for a, a site like that. Maybe, I don't know, there are other things like ShareBay is not the only one. There are quite a, a few other sites and apps that are kind of doing something similar. Uh, Buy Nothing, for example, they're coming up with something similar as well, FreeCycle. So there's there's uh, there's quite a few of them and maybe ShareBay won't make it or maybe this one won't make it. But the point is that eventually we will need some some kind of um, uh, local resource management system like that that we can basically see what's out there and see what, what people need. And um I don't remember your second point now. <laughs> Just to reiterate what Amanda said there earlier, it's not about going back to some kind of primitivism because that's not gonna happen. We couldn't do that even if we want if we tried, you know. But so it's about laying a bedrock basically for a different type of behavior a different shape of behavior than we're used to and it's bloody awkward and it's clumsy now at the moment you know and it's uh, it's difficult to do and I can tell you that from my personal experience because I, I've done it I've done it with people and it's it feels fucking counter you know intuitive and um that's that's what I would expect because this is not the way we're supposed to operate oh yeah I remember actually your, your other point Zach and uh you said that basically yeah, people would always still want to exchange. And I think this is a really good point that I would like to make is that what I was saying earlier about the the, the, the uh, variance between the upper limit of trade and the lower limit of trading where people profit by, by where there goes more or less, um, that if trade was not the, the, the de facto way of operating society, if trade was always optional, then we would always trade along that median line because there would be no reason not to. You know, because if, at the moment, where, you know, trade is an imperative, you know, you have to trade to get by, you have to have to pay for your house, to pay for your food, your car, or whatever it is you want to buy, you have to trade to do that. And because we're sort of, um, we coerce ourselves into that kind of system, then obviously it's gameable. It's very gameable, that system. People take advantage of that. And this creates the massive inequality, of course. And move from a trade-based society to a share-based society, whereas now we trade is the rule and sharing is the exception. If we could turn that on its head where sharing was the rule, but trade was the exception, then the chances are that all the trades that we would engage in would be fair trades because there's no incentive not to trade fairly. So if I want to swap my guitar for your, uh, know basket of avocados or something like that as long as we're both happy to do that then that trade can take place but no one is being coerced to do that to doing that because obviously we already have established a certain level of confidence in the sharing type society and everyone everything everyone's needs are already catered for anyway i think that's enough about sharing that's pretty much uh it's something i feel like i'm banging a drum a lot a lot about
1: well i kind of wanted to add a little something on that too and I because i really feel like you're on to something with the whole sharing um kind of being a foundation and i think that um it can be you know carried over into uh you know more more of the stuff that we're talking about doing like with communities and stuff i kind of wanted to touch touch on that a little bit uh i mean essentially you know, when when you're when you're forming communities such as, uh, you know, the ones we're talking about, like cooperative-based, you know, eco communities that are, you know, going to be integrating technology and whatnot. Um, I mean, essentially, these things will be founded upon sharing i mean literally in the dna of the you know cooperative corporation it essentially means that you are sharing this right there's no one you know person that owns the entire thing and has the ultimate say it's a sharing organizational structure and it's it's essentially founded in the DNA or in the corporate, you know, bylaws and articles of incorporation and whatnot in the structure at that point then. And I, I think things like that are, are probably I don't want to say necessary, but uh they'll be a good catalyst for putting people in that sort of mindset, essentially, right? Because people are we've been doing this, you know, capitalism thing where, you know, essentially corporations are dictatorships for You know, so long now for hundreds of years, and and the cooperative model is so scarce that most people aren't used to that right? Most people essentially don't know how to share in an economic environment, you know, to where labor goes in and products come out and things like that. We're so used to this owner essentially take all sort of arrangement that a sharing arrangement within a company or within a corporate environment almost seems like a foreign thing. You know, we're not used to that at our workplace. We're not used to that at our homes and our communities or anything like that, right? And the more we can take this sharing mindset and incorporate it into the DNA of a community, of an organization, of things like that, I think the more of a catalyst that will be to get people in that mindset, right? And and essentially like you were, you mentioned the Luddites earlier, I, I've heard that the Luddites were were really kind of more opposed to the private ownership of the machines than the actual machines themselves. It wasn't so much that that they opposed technology just in general, it was the fact that the technology was owned by these capitalists and that they were no longer having a means to survive. Essentially, they they were essentially losing their jobs and their sources of income and that was really mostly the basis for them going and destroying a lot of you know these machines and technology it wasn't so much that like machines in general were evil it was just kind of the the effect that they were having on their own personal livelihood and uh you know economy and whatnot but that kind of, I think that I think that can carry on into these communities and be a, and be a good foundation. And essentially, that means you're sharing everything. You're not just sharing the ownership of the community, you're, you, you're, or the me- methods of production, or the machines, and what yeah, and You're also sharing in the governance of it, right? You're you're sharing in in the community aspect of the decision making of the community. Uh, you're sharing in the benefits that the you know whatever it is the community produces provides. You know, if it provides food or technology or something like that, you're also sharing in those things. And it's all written out, you know, this isn't just something that, you know, arbitrarily kind of happens whenever people decide it wants to happen. No, this is the foundation of this community, right? And, and I think eventually, you know, what, what the goal of it is, I mean, I, I really kind of like the idea and kind of coming back to stored labor value. Right. If we share enough in in this mindset, we build these communities, and we each put enough labor into these things. Eventually, there's going to be enough value in the in this machinery, in the technology, in the organizational structure, uh, in the form of stored labor. You know that it that it actually starts to be a force of production on its own. Right. Because, you know, when you when you have stored labor that can kind of you you essentially keep that labor. It doesn't just evaporate into thin air. Right. You keep the value that a lot of labor creates in the form of infrastructure, um, especially information. Right. Say if you write a book or you create a software program, your labor has created something now that will essentially and at least in a digital form last forever right? And you're in that one effort that you produced something now can benefit hundreds or thousands or millions of people into the future, right? Just because you invented something or you made something like that. And it's kind of the concept of stored labor value going into these communities that eventually, you know, through the mechanism of sharing whatnot, they become, uh, you know, a community that provides abundance. Uh, Stephen Hawking uh, kind of put it really eloquently in saying it's, it's, we really kind of have a choice. We can create a dystopia if the capitalists own all of this technology, or it can be something closer to a utopia if we share it, right? if if the means of production are shared by everyone. And I think he hit the nail on the head and it's just essentially making sure that we create these structures where everybody shares them, where everybody owns them and they share them. And that's kind of embedded within the community, within the structure there through numerous mechanisms, not just one. You know, through the housing, through the through the labor, through the governance of it, through the ownership, through the profit. We're sharing in lots of different things there. And it kind of just creates, I think, essentially a mindset of what you're talking about. So I just kind of wanted to add that uh, to what you're saying and, you know, get your your opinion on it as well.
2: Just to clarify, you're talking about the cooperative model. Is that what you're talking about, Tim? Yeah, yeah um,
1: cooperatives, and also, and just to just to clarify as well, that uh, there's other models that I've heard that go that kind of take it even a little bit further. Like I've heard of uh, the fair share model, that really tries to incorporate, uh, you know, a, a sense of equity within the community, within the environment, into the structure, into the corporate structure of. Uh, you know, companies or organizations and whatnot, and kind of takes it even to the next level. So it could be a cooperative. It could be one of these fair share organizations uh, that I've heard about, you know, through various sources. Uh, But yeah, essentially, you know, yeah, that equal ownership, equal sharing model, you know? Yes, of course. It sounds a lot
3: like democracy in which everyone participates in because they are skilled and knowledgeable enough to do so in an adequate way. That's what it seems to mimic.
2: And just to get to your point there, that about the um, the cooperatives. Um, I, I I haven't I haven't researched any of these cooperatives in any great detail. Obviously, the most famous one we all know about is Mondragon, which is in in northern Spain, uh, possibly the biggest one in the world. Maybe I don't know. Um, I think also. I, it is. I think there's yeah. a lot of um, there's a lot of potential, huge potential in cooperatives. I love the idea in general. I think it's a great idea. It's absolutely a, a step in the right direction. Um, I'm just a, I'm just a little bit skeptical that basically these uh, cooperatives wouldn't become or would become uh, islands um sort of self-serving islands that are basically competing against one another. That we could that could enter that kind of scenario where it's it still becomes it still has that kind of tribal stuff built in. And then you would have these cooperatives that are c- competing against each other. But I still see it as I absolutely see it as a, a positive move. Yeah. I'm just I would just be a little bit skeptical that we will would just be creating islands, cooperative islands of of basically Um, little pockets of communities whereas what i'm talking about with like something like sharebay for example is that it's not it's not rooted in particular people or a particular asset or a particular product or or anything like that it's basically rooted in the idea of just transactions with any other person for any reason so uh, that in that way what i like about the sharing thing is that it's it's completely um Universal, I suppose. Yeah, it's just it can be it can happen anywhere, even though of course it's still happening in a very, very tiny way, but at least it's, it can happen anywhere in any way. So I mean, essentially,
1: I mean, it's a valid point. I think what you're saying, and it's I've kind of heard that uh, criticism of Mondragon a, a little bit too, to where they you know they kind of in, you know still do incorporate a good amount of capitalist you know structure within their organization, and it's somewhat is centered around that. And I think uh, you know that'll have to be dealt with essentially if if that sort of model is going to succeed, there there'll have to be some sort of uh, you know general consensus by the party participants in that model to somewhat create a resource-based economy but I also don't see it like as an island within itself I see it as something happening in conjunction uh you know with things like share bay uh essentially and it, it, I, I kind of look at it more the cooperative thing is more of like a proof of concept that, uh, you know, in building these sort of communities is like a proof of concept that the idea of a sharing community where people can go and build a community uh, and have it function without money, at least internally to a... To some degree and that's the goal you know whether or not it's going to be i'm sure it won't be perfect there will still be hiccups there will there will be challenges to overcome uh and like you're saying yeah they might end up kind of competing with each other in a sense and i think that's something that the cooperatives would have to kind of come to agreements with each other uh you know to either uh, perform mutual aid contracts or just sharing in particular with their items uh You know, because, yeah, exactly. One cooperative probably isn't going to be able to produce everything, you know, at least not initially. If anything, it'll be a network of cooperatives that work together, uh, you know, in, in a mutual aid fashion that can see to it that essentially everybody has everything they need within a network of cooperatives. And. And, and and even that, it's just the beginning, essentially. That's that's kind of what we want to create, but that's just kind of like a proof of concept model that we can take and maybe, and hopefully if something like that were to work, at least on a smaller scale, it would incentivize more people to use models like the ShareBay platform that you have, right? And And it's just kind of like helping build momentum, helping build the whole mindset that, hey, this thing is possible. We can create abundance, we can share. You know, instead of going about it, the mindset of, how much you know? Can I get how? How can I get everything that I need? It's really coming about with a mindset of how can I help everyone get everything they need? You know, not just me. Let's let's do what's right for everybody in the community. You know, highest good of all, essentially philosophy, like you know, one community uh, espouses a lot as well, which I think is you know a great way to sum it up. You know, doing what is in the highest good of all.
0: I think uh, the the point that I I kind of wanted to 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 get here to and and I I kind of wanted to shift gears because we're running out of time and I think that's kind of the the basic theme of where I want to sort of kind of round this show out with is that in terms of our, our globally interconnected, interwoven, you know, uh, mutually creative and destructive uh, network of of human society of connection of trade networks of all of our economies all of our nations and environments the universal fate of all is being threatened by this system by this monetary market-based trade relation that we are all you know unconsensually many of us engaged because our ecology is collapsing it's falling apart because the immediate good of one is placed above the imminent good of all and that what you're saying matt that you know, what's what's good for one is good for all, that, that you know, working together and coming together and sharing in that way, when you're in a small community, especially, it's like if you have a roommate, you know, if you have a bunch of roommates, and, you know, one of them is unhappy, one of them is not doing well in their life in some way, it affects you, it affects the quality of life for all of you, you know, if they if they're going to leave one extra dish in the sink that you have to pick up. That if your existence creates a little bit more labor for everybody on the simplest, most humblest form of, you know, even monetized cohabitation, that what affects one of us affects all of us. And we, we just have to move beyond that. We have to move outside of this notion that we need to act self-interested. So what I want to ask is, I watched your uh, TED Talk, Colin, and um, I'd recommend people watching that. Just Google Colin Turner uh, trade, and uh, you'll you'll be able to access that is in the video you said uh, that you know not only is moving away from trade and creating a system without money essentially the best way to answer all of our problems in society but it's really the only way and I, and I've I have felt this in my gut in my bones and I feel like if somebody I cared about asked me and put me in that corner I'd be able to answer it you know why is going moneyless not just the best not just the ideal, not just the one I want, the way forward. How is this the only way forward? Because the way I see it, we can't keep living like this. We can't keep functioning in this economic system at all in any way. That green capitalism won't work, can't work, because it inherently relies on extraction of some kind. That if we have nations at all that are self-interested... We can't work together because, as, uh, again, Schmachtenberger was talking about, if uh, there are fishing regulations for one country and all these other countries in these networks like the Paris Accords and the there's a, a Japanese um, alliance or something for uh, biodiversity loss, which says nobody's even thinking about or trying to, like, not eviscerate biodiversity loss. But if, if there is one country that is, you know, breaking some treaty – to not overfish a region, what's the incentive for all those other countries to not get in there and, and overfish or pollute or do all of these things that are bad for our environment? Because you know it's a zero-sum game and if they don't keep up in this hyper-competitive environment, they're gonna lose. So it, I, I kinda wanna open this up to all of us. You know, how is going moneyless, taking money out of our society, changing our economic incentive structure, how is that the only way That we can forestall climate apocalypse because i just it's 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 the strangest thing i know in my gut in the sinews of my being that this is true that this is why i'm having this conversation this is why i've devoted so many already hundreds or even thousands of hours you know to this conversation to this pursuit to this thought to the work that we're doing in this group that this is an aspect and a crusade that i will fight with until i'm dead because i have to because i know it's the right way i know it's the only way truly if we are truly honest with ourselves that we are really looking at reality as things are not a fragment of how things are not a conflagration or a story or a narrative of how the world works how things really work the real bones the nuts and bolts of how connected we are i know it's true but it, it, it takes all of us to find the words for these things it's a it's a deep thing it's a spiritual thing it's a mystical understanding that that this is the way to go i want to hear you all respond to that
2: yeah i'd love to jump in um the first thing i would say and the most obvious thing is why does a monopoly game end have you ever wondered why did a monopoly game end because everyone goes into the monopoly game with the same opportunity they all get 200 dollars every time they pass go they all had access to the same property the little bit of luck Flicks this way and that, and yet every time Monopoly game ends. Did you ever have a Monopoly game that went on forever where you just basically packed it all away and said "fuck this" and bored? No, it, it always ends because someone always ends up taking the money and that's basically the world that we live in that basically we are heading towards a system of capitalism that's so extreme and so inequality that's so extreme that basically we're just it's just going to keep going until basically someone has has all the poker chips basically at the end that's that's what that's the way it works that's how trade works it's it's not how trade intends to work you know the trade is kind of you know as i was saying earlier it doesn't it's not really an evil thing it's just that it it basically creates that effect it always creates that effect when you do it and so many times it creates that effect of uh, condensation of wealth that's what bruce Boghosian calls it but condensation of wealth which is exactly what happens that's why monopoly game ends and that is that's the biggest worry. Is really our our existential one in terms of our society, in terms of our personal well being, in terms of the you know the putting off fucking war and destroying ourselves. It's not just the climate that we're at, biodiversity is the problem. It's 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 our existential crisis in our the perpetuation of our species, perpetuation of biodiversity um of basically of well-being of people and uh, the well-being is taking a fucking beating really because even though lots of people are much much wealthier now than they were 50 years ago and uh, people have so much more fucking stuff now but people are getting less and less happy with all that stuff so this material abundance that we've created is not actually making us happier and at some point we have to ask ourselves well what is the fucking objective here? What's 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 the goal of our species? What are we what do we call progress? And at the moment we call progress technological ability we, or we call it wealth, material wealth or uh, social mobility. But it's none of it shouldn't be any of those things. It should be about well-being and happiness as we have individuals. And maybe maybe that means reducing our material um wealth accumulation. Maybe it does, I don't know, but maybe we have to look at, we have to incentivize happiness and well-being as a as a most important uh, values of a, of a sustainable society. And that can't happen within the current monopoly game, which ends up with uh, one guy with all the stuff. I also, uh, to take on your other point, Zach, about the, the spirituality thing. I mean, I'm not not a religious person at all, but I think that, I think there is something spiritual here that needs to happen. Some kind of spiritual awakening, some kind of elevation of consciousness to another level to take us out of the animal domain which is basically you know the law of the jungle you know eat or be eaten which is basically what we've been doing all the time at some point we have to ask ourselves well look are we do we really want to be civilized compassionate and uh, higher order beings do we really want to be that or do we really want to to uh to wear that wear that badge you know, and uh, well if we want to do that then things got to change. We can't behave the way we are behaving—a completely zero-sum and uh, adversarial um, society. That's that's an absurd way to behave. So we have to. There's a there's an existential and a spiritual problem here. We have to sort of uh, examine ourselves and think. Well, look, what kind of what sort of people do we want to be? What sort of species do we want to be? And uh, if we really ask ourselves that question and if we put happiness and well-being as the as our as the main goal of human life, then it, it it changes what we perceive as being what what would be the means to to create that end. And that may be uh sharing and volunteering more, it it may be um oh I yeah, I wanted to say something else actually, um just quickly. There's um I can't remember the name of the guy. There was a philosopher who basically uh, said this really, really interesting thing that I read. And I think there's a video by a guy called Darren Brown who made it. You probably wouldn't know him in in there, but he's a a famous um, UK magician. But uh, he made a video about this thing, about the pursuit of happiness. And he said, we have two states. We have an experiencing state and we have a remembering state. So the experiencing state is how we feel and how we think about the thing that we're doing right now. And then the remembering state is how we feel about that thing that we did when we look back on it. And we said the curious point is, is that our experiencing state and our remembering state are entirely different things. And we, all, we, we adjudicate on the quality of our lives based on our remembering state only and almost never on our experiencing state. And uh, he made a good example was that imagine you get up in the morning and you've got a choice. You've got two things you can do. You can either go to a fairground or to, um, you know, like a fucking Disneyland or whatever. Or you can go and you can you can help your uh, old relative to go and visit your old relative in an old folks home. Something like that. Now, obviously, most people would say, well, God, I'd much prefer to go to Disneyland. That's going to be great fun to do that than go and visit my sick uh, old relative but actually, the truth is that if you actually opt to go and visit your sick old relative, then later, when in your remembering state, you're going to feel more happy about the time that you spent during that time instead of going to Disneyland, because Disneyland was just like, um, you know, it's like an, an instant hit and it's gone, you know, and maybe you're going to have a good time. But the point is that when you do something that you don't necessarily really want to or enjoy, that when you look back on it afterwards... You actually enjoy it in retrospect, and you feel better about yourself in retrospect. And I think that's something that we don't think about generally in society because everything is just so short-term, quick fix, that sort of stuff. And I think that as that has to be taken into consideration for for our well-being. So, anyway, sorry, an answer to your point. I know we have to finish up, but absolutely, a, a spiritual and a, a some sort of a conscious elevation of self, I think, is really required f- for us to to progress. I think that's, that there's a lot to dig
0: into there and I'd like to respond directly to that and then uh, turn to Matt and Amanda and see their responses to that presumptuous question I posed to all of us. But I think it's it all comes down to our sense of meaning and purpose. And I think like playing music, those activities in our life that give us the most meaning, none of them has a price tag on it, you know, unless you get meaning from, you know, running a hedge fund and you know, shorting some company out of existence and destroying the thousands or millions of people's jobs, you get meaning generally in life through connecting with people, through cultivating love, through art, through beauty, through all of these things that have the hardest time being profitable. And it's like whenever anybody is trapped in the rat race and they're living living their soul-sucking job, and to anybody listening to this program who wants to know what to do, who's in that position and doesn't feel happy, doesn't feel compelled, what do people do? You know, they volunteer. They try to help someone. They try to, they, they feel alienated and, and like what they're doing in life isn't supporting humanity or isn't supporting the happiness or the well-being of all. So they volunteer. They go uh, to a, a soup kitchen or they go bring some food to a homeless person or, you know, it's, it's like to give... It, it, it's the opposite of the exchange where it's like me, the giver or the seller is going to receive the maximum benefit. You, the receiver is going to receive the minimum amount of benefit. It's like you are going to receive the greatest benefit from something that costs you nothing and gives somebody else everything that that is why we're here. And I, I think a devotion to humanity is where our sense of purpose is found, not in the amount of material means that you get out of it. Because I mean, the, the crisis of the rich is a crisis of purpose and on, and there is, there is equal unhappiness Truly, in a confounding warped and twisted way, I have seen some of the most unhappy people I've ever met have the most material abundance because it means nothing. It doesn't mean anything because we are metaphysical beings. We live in a world of ideas and feelings and concepts and, you know, relationships and all these things we have mean nothing. You know, from a quantum perspective, none of this exists none of this physically exists it's all particles spiraling around this soup of interconnectedness it does it's all metaphysical it doesn't exist what is real what is tangible what outlives the moment is the purpose and the meaning and the love that we create it's the impact that we have on this community this human this human mind that is so much greater than us and regardless of your you know theurgical or you know theistic beliefs uh, but that's not what spirituality necessarily is to me. It's consciousness, that we are all consciousness. We are not this body. We are something greater than us. We are something greater than our even our minds. And, and this is why this feeling burns in me that I, I can't quite say it comes from me. It just comes through me, of this desire to help us get past this stage so that we can elevate to something else, because that is what it, we're all about. That's why we're here. We're here to elevate our consciousness.
2: Absolutely, and I just have to to add to that that you've really hit the nail on the head there with this idea of um that we don't we don't view giving as being something of value. because we are are our current system our current trade system uh, more or less dictates that when you give of yourself then you lose you know you're down in value you know and uh, if you do something then you you'll you'll gain materially but you don't we don't think about the um, the other value the the internalized value of um, of of doing that thing and you only get that when you volunteer and obviously most people who do volunteer? They they know exactly what this means. My wife works in Red Cross, for example. She knows exactly the value of volunteering, many many hours and uh, helping people. And um, she's, and she's absolutely loved it. You know, she just thinks it's like it's just a so it's a totally profound, profoundly uplifting experience, and it's nothing to do with what you normally expect with uh, money and trade. So yeah, that feeling is hidden. It's masked by. The trading system by the money system it it doesn't get a chance to 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 show itself it's it's muted and uh if we if we're sharing society can happen and um, then that stuff comes to the fore you know because now we're empowering people to share and to volunteer we're even incentivizing it and um that's that's a great way to operate i think so yeah absolutely thumbs up to that zach very very good very into that
1: It's really interesting, too. Uh, Something I'd like to tack on to that. And um, I guess just to kind of answer your question uh, at the same time, uh, Marlo, you know, speaking of volunteering or whatnot, about uh, 15 15 or some odd years ago when I was in my early 20s, I I was, you know, having some trouble with alcohol. I ended up going to some AA meetings. And um, one of You know, one of the things that they advocated doing there, yeah, was was actually going back and giving to the community. And, um, you know, with as many of the struggles as I was having in my own life at the time, uh, it was just something that kind of helped me, you know, bring myself out of my own head too, just to also essentially realize that, you know, it wasn't, I was probably essentially making things worse than they were, you know, in my own head and, and physically for myself, but just bringing me out of that mindset and to the mindset that I could actually help other people, uh, you know, by volunteering in some situations, like we went to downtown Houston and, uh, you know, fed the homeless. We had, you know, huge Thanksgiving dinner or, or you know Christmas dinner for the homeless, um, uh, you know, those were some of the most gratifying, fulfilling things I've ever done in my life. You know, just to just to sit there and hand out turkey and stuffing to people on Christmas Day. And, um, you know, there's no, I, I'll remember that forever, too. And it's just it's just one of the most, uh, you know, incredible experiences I've had just to kind of bring myself out of my own reality and go out and help someone else. Uh, it was just such a valuable thing for me to experience and realize at that time that there was there, there was really nothing else, uh, you know, to substitute for that, that I I think I could have done. And, and, and just having that experience of volunteering as well as just kind of the community that uh, AA provided to be able to do that with other people, um, you know, all at the same time and just have that kind of the solidarity in, you know, helping people and helping the homeless community and things like that. It was just, it was such a powerful experience. And, and I think one of the catalysts that kind of helped me realize that that was a line of work that I essentially wanted. To be in for the rest of my life, you know I found it so fulfilling that I want to help people in in whatever way I can, essentially, you know, and this is by doing this type of work by trying to create the communities and whatnot um you know it's it 's kind of my way long term you know helping 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 people that are you know and not uh, fortunate situations as as we find ourselves in, um, but but again just to kind of directly you know address what Marlow was saying too I think the profit incentive will always be there as as long as the monetary system is there and it incentivizes the opposite of volunteering essentially at that point it's not about what you can do for someone else it's about how much profit I can generate for myself and it's kind of the antithesis. Uh, you know, the, the total opposite of actually going out and helping the community of volunteering. I, you know, I, I see corporations kind of whitewash it sometimes like, oh, if you buy something, we'll donate a pair of shoes or we'll give, you know, 10% of the profits or, or so much to this. But, to me, tax that's, yeah. To me, that's more of a it's more of a ploy, a tax write off or something like that than it than it really is, you know, doing something genuine for for the community and whatnot. It doesn't have the same feeling or the same effect, in my opinion. And and you and it's really difficult, if not impossible, to to capture both of those elements at the same time. You know, it's it's kind of either you have one or the other, but you can't really have both essentially. And um, to me, it's just like if we don't really if we really don't eliminate the profit incentive, it's essentially it's not going to work. And that's that's what Marlow was essentially getting at initially is why why does money have to go? In my opinion, that's why the money has has to go. Essentially, that's why the profit mechanism essentially has to be done away with. Otherwise, we won't get the opposite of that volunteering mechanism gone, (laughs) if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah, I mean there's been a lot of ample studies on the um on this the topic of um if you ask somebody to do something without payment or you ask them to do it with payment, then uh, people only think about the reward. You know, if you ask somebody to draw a picture or to um I don't know to solve a puzzle, um they'll do it and they'll they'll concentrate on it. But now you say, okay, I want you to do the same thing, but I'm going this time I'm gonna give you twenty-five bucks for doing that. Now, they're they're much less efficient on doing it because they're thinking about the reward. They're not thinking about the task. So that's, you know, fucking spread that out over the whole world. And yeah, you can see what a fucking how inefficient we're being. This is why I think that sharing and volunteering as a basis for a society is just is going to be much more efficient. <laughs>
3: And inefficiency is the core of my thesis and and the epitome of my frustration when it comes to how things are handled under the monetary system. The fact that we have money, the middleman, in between us and the resources that we need to live, I believe is what generates all the irrationality and all the inefficiency that we see in the world and that keeps us from living a truly happy and healthy existence. So why does money have to go in order to save the world from ruin? Because as long as we are accounting based on money, I'm sorry, money, which is intangible and man-made and and practically indefinite, instead of accounting along the lines of the resources that we're actually uh, using, um, then then we're we're doing the math wrong. We're, we're, our math is imaginary, you know. Uh, you've 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 heard the term imaginary squiggly lines, uh, like on the stock market. Like we are we're making people happy per se by filling their pockets, lining lining pockets with money, but we're not being sustainable And that we are not doing the math correctly. We are not counting the resources we're using. We're counting the dollars that we're producing, and that is what's going to lead us to ruin. We're already on the track. The trajectory is set unless we divert drastically and immediately.
2: Sure, and of course, well-being of course is not it among there of the those incentives, and the well-being and happiness of humans should be our number one priority. You know, and obviously in a done in a responsible and sustainable way, should be our number one priority. And and something
1: I kind of would just wanted to add on to what Colin was saying earlier is kind of interesting. The the monopoly. The, the thing we're talking about monopoly analogy is 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 it rings true I, I've never heard anybody put it quite like that because it makes a lot of sense essentially uh, you know the goal of the profit system for for a company uh you know operating within the the profit and the monetary system essentially becomes growth and domination it's not just profit at that point it's uh, you know I heard an author i forget who it was the other day uh, put it that way and it made a lot of sense because essentially a company their goal is to just grow and grow and grow and dominate Dominate more and more and more of the marketplace to ensure their survival in the long term. And the, the mechanism by which they do that is just acquiring more companies, you know, gaining further market dominance, uh, moving into new industries. And that's, and that's what you have with, say, companies like Amazon and Google and these giant behemoths that are just essentially dominating large portions of the marketplace, you know, in various uh, industries now. Um, but that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it's happening on a worldwide global scale now that, you know, Essentially, people are starting to quote unquote win, <laughs> you know, at the game of Monopoly. It seems like it's close to end game, essentially, like to, to where there's going to be a systemic collapse if the wealth gets concentrated much more in the owners of the monopoly, essentially. And it's like, I mean, the, the winners are going to jet off for space and leave
0: like three dollars on the game board with all the other players still in there. And, and eventually, somebody's going to rip up the board and throw it in the air. I think I got it figured out, actually. So, capitalism. Hang on one second. There's a, a, a huge, there's construction out my window. One second, let me see if it's, I don't know if it's picking up. It might be, who cares? They're ripping up the world out there. They're building it. I mean, it fits. It fits that there's somebody needlessly drilling and creating, not creating, but building something, some nonsense out the window right now. It's because capitalism cannot exist without growth. Exactly. It can't exist without endless, continuous, competitive growth. That system cannot be compatible with a finite system on earth. I mean, that's very, very simple. It seems very simple. I don't understand how people don't get it. Capitalism cannot exist without growth and extraction. It can't exist without extracting resources from places all over the world. And it, without, extraction depends on an underclass. You need people or you know, machines who are or people to build the machines that are going to be able to go into these dirty, dangerous places and extract things. It, it, it requires a winner and it requires a loser. There can be no situation like that in any kind of a sustainable system. So I I think it it really all comes down to growth and profit. I mean, you can have a system where, oh, okay, we don't have profit, but we have money for some stupid reason where it's like, where it's like, okay, you have this credit where it's like some decentralized crypto future sort of form of money, even if it is just an actualization of like, okay, you're all allotted this X number of credits, X number of food, X number of whatever. But it's at that point, it's just like, why do you need, why do we need this extra extraneous middleman to to you know mediate our resources we know the resources that we have we have the technology to and you know in in the future we can use social media and things like that and algorithms and machine learning and artificial intelligence that's you know ethically optimized to make sure that we don't overstrip ourselves so we don't need money and it's like this pursuit of this thing this abstraction is what is driving all of the earth's collapses so i think that's it i mean I'm, I'm sure we'll continually need to expound upon this to please all the adults out there or all just the people who are honestly and sadly have Stockholm syndrome for this system that they have been conditioned to think that they need to live. Which sucks, which hurts everyone. It doesn't make you happy. Come on.
1: I think you, I hit, I think you hit the nail on the, on the head, Zach. The guy on my window certainly did. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on our show, Colin. I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything you'd like to say to wrap it up? And and also, please please let us know you know how we can find you online. Give us give us your information, your website, and and all that stuff.
2: Um, sure. Well, if anyone's interested in the Free World Charter, which was the thing I mentioned initially, which is about the ten guiding principles for a moneyless society, they can find that at freeworldcharter.org. The only other thing really worth mentioning, I suppose, is ShareBay, of course, which is, um, for me, is far more important. I don't really promote the charter anymore because I don't see it as uh, something that's that's immediately actionable. And so ShareBay is where I think the the nuts is. This is where we can do this or not. Um, and I think I would love to see more guys getting on board with this because it's only by trying alternative ways of dealing with each other in a transactional sense that I think that we can actually evolve out of this and become maybe more a moneyless society, which is what we want. So, I mean, as I said earlier, I believe that we have to change the way we interact with each other in an economic way, and ShareBay is one way to do that. And uh, people can check that out, sharebay.org if, they're, if they'd like.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Colin. Anybody else have anything to add before we uh, call it a day?
0: One last little point is that is that one of the re- the other reasons we have to get this money stuff out of the way is because of the motivation, is because it's so much more motivating to do something because you love it than because you're getting, because somebody else says it's worth this. This is what it's worth. Our time together here is priceless to me. You know, the work that I do, I get paid for almost none of it. I just, get by always <laughs> just barely and I love it I, I've never been so happy I've never had so little money in my life I've never spent so little time thinking about money and I've never been more happy and I've never made been been able to learn more and grow more than when I just kicked that shit out of the, out of my life you know that I okay yeah I don't like this stuff but it's necessary no it's not it's not necessary it's absolutely it's actually the, the, the big thing keeping us from actualizing our potential really just taking the cap off and 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 setting sail for for where we can go for what we can be. the Agreed. Yep. Let's
2: do it. Come on, everybody else. (laughs) Let's get this party started.
1: Onward and upward.
2: Thanks, everyone. Okay. Good night from Ireland. Okay. Take care. The Free World Charter. The Free World Charter is a statement of principles that has the potential to optimize life on earth for all species, eradicate poverty and greed, and advance progress. Neither political nor religious, these ten short principles could form the foundation of a new, advanced society that uses no money, is free, fair and sustainable. They are based solely on nature, common sense and survival. The Free Will Charter is now widely considered a logical progression out of the failing mechanisms of today's society and a natural step in our evolution. Preamble In this year, 2021, Our personal freedoms, environment, and biodiversity have become critically endangered by our mismanagement of global resources. This charter document proposes 10 fundamental principles on which to grow an entirely new world society based on fairness, common sense, and survival. Once observed, these principles will realize human equality, minimize suffering and injustice, create a cooperative society that promotes progress and technology, and guarantees a healthy, diverse, and sustainable world for all species. Principles The highest concern of humanity is the combined common good of all living species and biosphere. Life is precious in all its forms and free to flourish in the combined common good. Earth's natural resources are the birthright of all its inhabitants and free to share in the combined common good. Every human being is an equal part of a worldwide community of humans and a free citizen of Earth. Our community is founded on the spirit of cooperation and an understanding of nature provided through basic education. Our community provides for all its members the necessities of a healthy fulfilling and sustainable life freely and without obligation. Our community respects the limits of nature and its resources Ensuring minimal consumption and waste, our community derives its solutions and advances progress primarily through the application of logic and best available knowledge. Our community acknowledges its duty of care and compassion for members who are unable to contribute. Our community acknowledges its responsibility to maintain a diverse and sustainable biosphere for all future life to enjoy. It is only with popular support that we can effect the kind of changes now necessary to sustain life on Earth into the far future.